Good morning. It is a great pleasure for my family and I to be here with you this morning. I could hardly imagine a more warm welcome that a family could receive by a church that we hadn't been to, or any of us hadn't been to, in four years almost. I myself hadn't had a chance to worship with anyone in this congregation for almost a decade, and yet we could walk in last week and this morning and be welcomed as dear family and friends. Uh, So thank you. You are truly a blessing to myself and to my family, and know that even in the great frozen wastelands of northern Minnesota, this congregation is remembered and prayed for regularly. What unites us in Christ is greater than what could possibly separate us in this world. This morning we are going to spend the majority of our time in Romans chapter 13, Though we are going to start by reading from 1 Peter 2 to help round out our context as we discuss the Christian and the civil authority. So I invite you to turn with me to 1 Peter 2, 13 through 20. It's Hebrews, James, then 1 Peter, and we're in chapter 2, 13 through 20. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do is right. For such is the will of God, that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men, and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God." Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor. For if the sake of conscience toward God a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. Now we turn to our main passage for this morning, Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. We have the Gospel of John and the book of Acts, and then Romans will be in chapter 13. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore... 
It is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this you also pay taxes, for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render all what is due them, tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Well, I wanted to start with both of these passages from two different authors who often emphasize different things in their writings because we need to see the consistent teaching of Scripture when it comes to the understanding of how the Christian is to relate to human authorities. You probably saw a vast amount of agreement between Peter and Paul in these passages. This morning is my aim is to help us understand the relationship between the Christian and the civil authority. Primarily, we will spend most of our time focusing on the civil authorities, often called the civil magistrates, though we will also delve a little bit into the other human authorities that God has established, namely fathers over their households and elders over the church. To do this, we will need to understand how the Christian is meant to understand and relate to human authorities as established by God. We need to understand what is our default position, what should our default position be in relationship to those authorities. How should we respond to those authorities? Only then, once that is established, can we look at the purpose and scope of authorities, and then how we can respond when these human authorities are acting against the will of God, rather than according to His design. We need to consider all those things before we can ever consider, do we ever have the right or the obligation to resist, to disobey, or to fight back? We have a lot to consider this morning. And this is a very timely message very timely issue for Christians to understand and to get right. We've already had a massive wake-up call in the last few years. Those of us who were not ready in 2020 to understand how to respond when a government makes actions that we feel are oppressive, if we didn't know it before then that we needed to be ready, we have no excuse now. So I ask you to join me in prayer as we ask that God would give us both the wisdom and the courage to live as faithful Christians in the ever-darkening world around us. Father, I come to you confessing my inadequacy for this task before me. And I am so very thankful and give you all the glory and honor and praise that you delight to use weak vessels to proclaim big truth. Fragile tools to shape, to cultivate. So Father, I pray that you do that this morning. That you would keep me from error. 
that you would guide me in the right words and the right way in which to speak them, that you would open ears to hear your truth, you'd cause us to lower our guards, that we might accept what is of your word, and to allow anything that is frivolous or of myself to pass through one ear and out the other, having no effect. I thank you that you are God. I thank you that you are worthy of our praise and our devotion and all that we are, all that we have, and all that we can build. Pray all these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. So as you can imagine, Romans 13, 1-7 has a long history of being interpreted in light of the circumstances of those who are reading the text. That is to say, in studying this particular passage, it is difficult to ignore one's present reality. It's difficult not to focus on what is happening in our lives, what we see around us, and instead look to what the meaning of the author is. Remember, the meaning of Scripture is always what the author designed it to be. It's especially difficult in passages that that speak to hot-button issues, speak to things that seem to be rapidly changing around us, becoming more important. It's natural, unavoidable even, that we would view these commands with both our government in mind... Or perhaps if we're student of history, students of history, some governments that we've known in the past, such as maybe the Roman government or the British Empire. It's difficult not to keep those in mind as we study this passage and think about what is Paul writing for us. So we must therefore be very intentional in resisting any claims of uniqueness for our personal situation. Or for immediately pressing into the, well, what about this kind of statement that we are so prone to when we feel ourselves being stretched or challenged by something in the text of Scripture. Our primary aim this morning is to establish how we as Christians are to relate to the governing authorities in every place, in every time in history. Only then can we justly look at how that applies to us, how that applies to our government, our situation in this time and in this place. Lest we forget, and we should need reminding, as Christians, our primary, supreme, and all-encompassing identity is Christ. Period. We are Christians. We are in Christ. We are citizens of His kingdom. That is where we should see ourselves. Whether or not this nation rises or falls means very little to us. We are in Christ. We will weather whatever comes before us, or we will be with our Savior in glory. That is our hope. That is our focus. That must be primary in our hearts and our minds, or we will never get any of this right. Anything else we might identify ourselves as is subordinate to that most basic and fundamental reality. We must live as men and women, as fathers, 
fathers, mothers, and children, as employees and employers, as faithful Christians. That is what ought to unite us, no matter where God leads us, no matter what vocation God calls us to, no matter how many children He blesses us with, no matter what state or county we live in. As we live as citizens of this country, we must do so, as I said, first and foremost, as faithful Christians. We cannot afford to be confused about that priority. Let us remember the context of this letter that Paul wrote to the Romans. Paul wrote this letter to the church in Rome that had a very large Jewish contingent. At this point in history, if you're a student of history, you'll know this, the Jewish people had proven very difficult to govern. The Jewish people were very quick to resist. They were very quick to foment rebellion and hesitant to accept any authority that was not their own. That shouldn't surprise us if you've read the Old Testament. They constantly bucked against authority. In this way, they were not so different from many of us. And as we look back at history, we know what destruction that, rebel- that rebellion bought for the nation of Israel. And beloved, that is not to be the posture of the Christian to the governing authorities. Christians must not long for the opportunity to resist, to defy, or to revolt. If you're of my generation, it doesn't matter how excited you got watching Red Dawn, how much you wanted to shout out Wolverines and resist an opposing foe, Christians ought not to long for that chance to revolt, to resist, or to fight. Christians should see the goodness of God. You should see the goodness of God in the spheres of authority that He has given us. Christians should be the first, the very first, to support, encourage, and uphold legitimate offices of authority. Even when, and especially probably, when they are not perfect. Well, Paul began chapter 13, as we just read, after reminding the reader in the end of chapter 12 to overcome evil with good. And then he started in Romans 13 saying that every person, literally every soul, is to be subject to the governing authorities. So there's, there is no one, there is not a single person on this earth who is not under authority. That might help us get this conversation right. No sheriff, no mayor, no governor, no president, no king or emperor is ultimately autonomous. They are all, every one of them, under the authority of Christ, His law, and His kingdom. Because of that, every earthly authority is a delegated authority. 
My authority over my wife and over my children does not come because of the weight of my personality, the weight of my character, or anything about me. It is a delegated authority. That is true in every level of authority. Anyone's ability to compel action, to reward what is good or to punish what is evil, is due to their being vested with an authority that ultimately belongs to somebody else. Every legitimate human authority is a delegated authority. And every human authority exists only by the decree of God. All legitimate authority comes from God. And that is going to have very important implications on our discussion this morning. Paul here is speaking to believers... But the command to be subject to the governing authorities is universal to humanity as it refers to the order that God has set in place to govern mankind. So the principles which which God created the world, created mankind, created society. These are things that would have been true even without the fall. There was order and structure. There was authority invested by God as a good part of His design. The establishment and real human authority that is given by God to specific people is a mercy. Another thing we need to hold on to in the back of our minds. The establishment of governing authorities, even those civil magistrates, that is a mercy of God. It is for the good of mankind. In this context, Paul is speaking directly about governing authorities or civil magistrates. But it will be important for us to remember that God has established different layers, different spheres of sovereignty when it comes to authority. And each of these spheres of sovereignty is given responsibility to govern and to protect those who are under their charge. Each of these spheres of authority possesses an authority limited by the scope of their charge. And each of them remains subject to the absolute authority of Christ and His law. Husbands have been given real authority over their households. Elders have been given real authority over the churches in which they rule. Civil magistrates have been given authority over the people they govern. Each of these authorities is given a sphere of influence by God. Each of these authorities has been given a scope and a charge, a command of God of what they are to do and how they are to lead and protect. Each of these authorities were established by God for the good of the human race. While no authority other than God Himself is absolute... Those that He has instituted are real, they are consequential, and we are called to live in submission to them. I don't think it's insignificant that Paul uses the word for submission in our text this morning rather than making a blanket call to obedience. I believe that points to the posture of those that Christians ought to have towards institutions. It speaks to how we should look to them, how we should relate to them by defaults, knowing that they are yet occupied by sinful men. 
The difference between submission and blanket obedience helps remind us that our ultimate allegiance is to the standard of God, to the authority that He has given, not to those men who hold the offices. It is possible, and I think we will see as we continue this morning, to have a submissive posture towards ruling authorities, all the while holding our obedience to a higher standard, even when that higher standard demands that we resist, we disobey, or we fight against that lower authority. So, beloved, would you be in resistance to established authorities? Paul would warn us to beware. For whoever resists the authorities established by God resists God Himself. That's why it's such an important deal when children disobey and resist the authority of their parents. They are disobeying God. We worry for disobedient children, not because it offends their parents, because it offends God. We worry about church members who rebel against the authority of the elders, because it is an offense against God. It is God's authority entrusted to those holding those positions. It may go against our American sensibilities, But the natural posture of the Christian is to be of submission. That hurts a little bit as a a red-blooded, proud American. We have no king. We don't bend the knee to anyone. As Christians, we bend the knee. As Christians, we fall on our face before our God. And we need to, we must submit to Him in all things. And submit to His authority where He has invested it. Of course, that doesn't mean there will never be a time to resist or disobey. Because even men who are holding legitimate authority and legitimate office remain sinful. And they will abuse. And given the chance, they will slip into tyranny. But if our natural impulse is to look for an excuse to rebel, then we are not thinking or behaving as Christians. Hear me on this. The love of rebellion is pagan. It is not Christian. It is the fall and the curse that cause men to desire the destruction or the upending of the structures that God has put in place. It has well been stated that anarchy is not a Christian virtue. Too often resistors say that they hate tyranny, but they really hate all authority, right or tyrannical. That is pagan. The love of rebellion is pagan. The love of resisting and going against established authorities is pagan. Right order, law, and well-established structures have been given as the good gifts of God in every sphere of life, in every age of man. 
God's people are taught to submit to the established authorities as submission unto God Himself. Not above God, but from God. In the pursuit of understanding what Paul was communicating in this passage, the question naturally arises, or at least it should arise if we're thinking carefully. Was Paul describing his experience with the civil magistrates of his day, or was he giving the charge and parameters for those who would exercise authority at any time in history? To put it another way, was he being descriptive or was he being prescriptive? That is to say, what, was he saying what was or was he saying what should be? Well, let's look again starting in verse 3 and see if we can find an answer to that question. <laughs> so for rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good and you will have praise from the same for it is a minister of God for your good. So what does Paul say about legitimate governing authorities? He explicitly states that they are not a terror for those who are doing what is right, but they are for those who are doing what is wrong. That much is very much in keeping with what Peter wrote in 1 Peter 2. Not only that... But he he states that if you do what is right, you should expect to be honored, rewarded by those who are in authority over you. But that if you commit evil, you should be afraid. Because God has given them the right to punish lawlessness. So we can ask, is that the experience that Paul and the early church had under the Roman Empire in the first century? Or, is that instead what God has given civil authorities as their purpose, their scope, and their responsibility? Well, let's dive a little bit deeper even into a more basic question. What does Paul mean in this passage by good and evil? Do the governing authorities get to determine what is right and what is wrong? Is there any possibility that Paul is defining what is right and what is wrong according to a human standard that was in place in that day because of the rulers of men? Well, I hope you all realize the obvious answer to that question. It is simply biblically unthinkable that Paul would be relating to any kind of human standard here. The only standard Paul would reference here would be the law of God. God's authority and God's law over every other authority and over every other standard known by man. God defines what is right and wrong. God alone defines what is right and what is wrong. Men either obey or rebel against His authority. And pay the penalty. So knowing the only thing that that would be right and wrong, the only standard Paul would have used in this passage was the law of God, can we say that Paul was describing the state of the civil authorities in his day, in his lifetime? 
Or is he simply prescribing the proper exercise of the authority that was given to the civil magistrates as instituted by God? Well, we can say that even the corrupt government of the Roman Empire yet fulfilled much of the purpose of the state that God had instituted. We know that it often punished righteousness. It often rewarded what was evil. So Paul was relating the proper scope of the civil magistrates. Not ultimately what he, or what anyone else, or what we would experience in our lifetimes. Well, what does that mean? Why is that distinction important? That he's being descriptive, or sorry, he's being prescriptive rather than descriptive. The Christian's natural posture is to be in submission of the God-ordained authorities of men. It's important because we need to understand what authorities are God-ordained. What is the scope of authority that is God-ordained? Because we are commanded by Scripture to be in submission to the God-ordained authorities that are present among men. So this must mean, at the very least... That the Christian is to submit to the governing authorities as long as, and in every instance that, those authorities are carrying out the charge as given to them by God. Even when the government fails, even when they fail miserably in part of its charge... The believer is yet to live in peace and in submission as far as they are able under the higher authority of God. As far as it depends on us, we ought to be the very best of citizens. Because we see all legitimate authority as coming from our God, whether we like it at the time or not. If and when the time comes for resistance and disobedience to the rulers around us, it must, hear this, it must come out of a greater allegiance to the law of God and not out of a hatred of the yoke of authority. Even when we are forced to resist. And if you are students of the Bible, you know there will be times Christians are forced to resist. Even when we are forced to resist, we do so out of devotion to God. And not out of spite or the hatred of tyrants. Our natural posture is that of submitting to legitimately established Authority. Probably getting tired of hearing me say that. I'm not done yet. Our actions must flow out of that position, that posture. And as I said, even when it drives us to resist, it's because we are resisting evil. We are resisting the harm that it is causing to image bearers of God because we love God, because we love His commands, because we love what He has called us to. 
So what is the purpose of God establishing governing authorities? Probably an important thing for us to know. We can see in our text this morning, it is for the preservation of life and the right ordering of human society. God is aware of the human condition. God is aware of the wickedness of the human hearts. And He has in wisdom and mercy established the means of rewarding what is good and punishing what is evil, thereby thereby sustaining human society. Beloved, the worst possible situation for men to find themselves in is not that which is under evil rulers. That is not the worst place we can find ourselves. The worst place we can find ourselves is without any rulers at all. Anarchy is a greater threat to human flourishing than is a wicked government. And I believe that's true under any government we can imagine. Just think of Scripture if you read through times in the Old Testament or read through times in the Judges. Even in the midst of seeing such marvelous, miraculous salvation by the hand of God. Signs and wonders that we just long to be able to get a glimpse of the nation time and time again with nobody hanging over them. The punishment, legitimate punishment in the short term, not just eternal punishment, but quick punishment without a yoke over their shoulders to keep them in line. What did the people do? Time and again, they did what was right in their own sight. What was the result? Every time we see in the Old Testament that the people did what was right in their own sight. Radical depravity. Radical idolatry. It was worse for them to do what is right in their own sight than it was to have the Philistines pressing down harshly on their necks. That is the lowest place we ever find society in Scripture. Is where everyone does what is right in their own eyes. We will discuss what the Christian is to do when civil authorities have abdicated their natural rights or have abused the authority that they have been given. That is a natural question to ask. However, Paul's efforts in this passage as Peter's were in 1 Peter 2, were not to discuss the exception to the rule, but to define the right and proper attitude of the believer toward the authorities established by God. And we ought to be more concerned with our position before the authorities, our posture to them, than we are about finding all the different ways and excuses by which we can rebel against them. As we have said, God established civil authorities for our good. Paul said that the magistrate was the servant of God. Just to remind ourselves, Paul is probably writing in the early reign of Nero. So if you know anything about Nero, Paul is calling Nero a servant of God. The word that is here, transliterate, or here translated as servant is what we normally transliterate as deacon. 
So the civil magistrate is the deacon of God for our good. In the end of chapter 12, believers were charged never to avenge themselves, but leave room for the wrath of God. The beginning of chapter 13 actually shows us part of the reason that believers can leave room for that wrath. The reason that we don't have to seek vengeance for ourselves is because God has instituted civil magistrates among us that wield the sword that they can exercise God's wrath against lawlessness. When we are wronged, the command to leave vengeance to God protects us from the sins that would no doubt overcome us if we were to attempt to bring about our own vengeance. And for those of you who have gotten caught in that trap, you know what that does to your life, what that does to your heart and your soul. There is comfort in knowing that in the end, God will make all things right. There is comfort for that. And for some people, for many believers around the world in history and today, that is the only comfort they have, is that one day God will make all things right. That one day the pain will be gone. That one day their suffering will have completed the suffering of Christ and they will reign with Him in glory forever. For many Christians, that is the only comfort that they will have in this life. Yet for others... Even under wicked authorities, there is the comfort of knowing that there is immediate judgment that falls upon most, or at least many, crimes that are committed against us. That is a comfort. God loves justice. The civil magistrates are given by God to be servants for our good. Paul gives two reasons in our text for the believer to be in sub- subjection to the civil authorities. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For the sake of escaping the wrath of God, we do what is right and avoid what is wrong. Specifically in this context, there's things that we do what is right, what we have been commanded to do by authorities who are legitimately placed over us because we fear the penalty of breaking the command. Keeps most of us from speeding too quickly. He has instituted structures and authorities to both promote what is right but then to seek out those who have done wrong and bring them to justice. The fear of the penalty that you will pay for a crime is a good and legitimate reason, a good and legitimate motivation to not do what is wrong. For the unbeliever, that is as far as the motivation will go, except for perhaps the desire for a reward. For the Christian, we have another, a greater reason to not do what is wrong, but to do what is right. We obey the law of God because we have God's law written on our hearts. We have the Spirit of God indwelling within us, reminding us to do what is right. The Spirit of God that brings about conviction within us to show us when we have been wrong. 
when we need to repent. More effective than any policeman hiding behind a bush hoping to catch you speeding by. It's that kind of obedience that every parent desires from their children. When they're young, yes, we teach them to fear the rod so that they will learn to obey. But as they mature, we desire them to obey because they want to be pleasing to us and therefore more pleasing to God. Even the best in human institutions have limits. There are always going to be ways for men to break the law, to take advantage of or to harm others, and avoid punishment at the hands of the governments. And Christian, know that there are mostly going to be ungodly men who get away with it. We have a loving Father in heaven who will discipline us when we go into error. He will correct us and bring us back. Thus part of the frustration, I think, of, of the psalmist decrying how evil men are doing evil and getting away with it. But the righteous suffer because God disciplines His own. The Christians, we ought to be the very best citizens or subjects to the civil authorities because we are called to a higher standard. We are called to obedience to the law of God. We are called to seek peace. We are called to pray for our enemies and for those in authority over us. Even when those two are the same, when our enemies are the authorities that are over us. We are called to do what is right, not simply because we want recognition or because we think it will gain us something in this life, but because we love and fear God. We ought always, even in resistance, we must always be the very best of citizens. If you have read the works of Christians as they were forced to resist or to disobey tyrants throughout history, you will see the flowery and gentle language that they express at the founding of our country, at, at Magdeburg, when they, the followers of Luther refused to be Romanized again by Charles V. Very gentle language to go back and express their desire, their longing to be able to submit to the authority, yet they are bound to something higher, and they will serve God. In verse 6, Paul addressed something very practical, if distasteful to us. He said, for because of this you also pay taxes. Another four-letter word. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Another very hot-button issue when we discuss taxes. But I can promise you, the Jews living in first century Judea were way more upset about their tax system than we are about ours. Out of that frustration, and in an attempt to trap Jesus, to try and force him into an error, to force him to say something that they could hold against him, the Pharisees asked Jesus about taxes. He said, tell us then, in Matthew twenty-two seventeen through 21 Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? 
They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. If the civil authorities are God's servants for our good, then it should not surprise us that we are called to support them in that pursuit. Of course, that doesn't mean the civil magistrate is always right in imposing the taxes they desire. There is a right and a wrong way to tax a people. And evil men will unjustly exploit those under their charge and will need to be called to repent. In such an environment as we have, we must, we should be doing all that we can to advance good and righteous law. We have a unique circumstance in history that we have some ability remaining to hold people accountable for the laws that they put in place. Some ability to influence how the money we pay in taxes is used. So as we have any ability, we must work to bring about the greatest good according to the law of God. Yet we have to remember, even as we press the freedom we have to influence our government, our ability to do that in this time and place is the exception, not the rule. Continuing on the theme of paying taxes, Paul continued, Render to all what is due them, tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Just as we are told in the book of Proverbs not to withhold good from those with whom it is in our power to do good, Proverbs 3.23, we are charged here not to withhold taxes, nor respect, nor honor to those authorities that God has placed over us. For our legitimate authorities, as to anyone else, we ought to owe them nothing we ought to be giving them all that is their due. We are to act rightly toward them, pay our taxes, give honor as it is due. That means also that we do not give to the state that which is God's. That we do not give the state the authority that God has delegated elsewhere. That we do not let the state become our God as it tries to act as though it is. Beloved, the implications of this passage are broad. They are nuanced. And they require us to do a lot of hard searching about how we must think as a Christian. We must be disciplined to start from those principles that are universal, that we have been commanded throughout all time in history, in Scripture. We must do that before we press in to the specifics of our time and age and how we can behave here and now. With the time I have remaining, I want to try and briefly address some of the questions or concerns we might face as we try to think as Christians on this matter. First off, when we consider how authority has either been improperly used, improperly assumed, or abused, we need to take a good hard look at ourselves and see where we might have been part of the problem. If we have sinned, 
We need to repent and determine from here on out to walk faithfully. I don't think any of us are going to escape this conversation without having something to repent of. Somewhere that we have been sinfully negligent or even purposely sinful in this world in which we live as it regards to authority. Even if it is painful and difficult, if the church will not repent and turn and walk faithfully from here, there is no hope for change in this nation. So I ask you, have you given the state authority over your lives or over the lives of your children that it shouldn't have? Have you been comfortable and happy with the state taking care of your finances, your retirement, your medical care, even the education of your children? At least, were you okay with it before it got bad? As if it was ever anything but bad that the state got involved with any of it. good or bad, the state should never have been given that authority in our lives. And the state would not have it had we not welcomed it, had we not relaxed and enjoyed our leisure as we gave over the difficulty of those things in our lives so that it could deal with it for us. We asked the state to take care of all of our burdens so that we could live comfortable American lives. We need to repent This nation needs to repent for making the state its God. Many of us need to repent of thinking that our God-given rights are actually privileges bestowed upon us by the state. That is how many of us live. We have been thinking that the we've been fooled into thinking that the state is merciful and benevolent when they allow us to worship our God in our houses of worship, when they allow us to have some influence in the raising of our children or in the order of our homes. The state should have no voice in these matters. These are rights from God. Do not give the glory of God to the state and ceding these rights to the state. How about the other spheres of sovereignty in the home and in the church? Fathers, are, are you frustrated that so many of our children grow up and leave the church? Do you need to repent of handing over the primary spiritual discipline and education of your children to the church? Generations of Christians have handed their children over to Sunday school teachers or to hired hands in the congregation to raise their children for them, to try and combat the thousands of hours that they will get of public indoctrination using a felt board. Do you need to repent of handing your children's spiritual life over to the church? Men, are you frustrated that your wives rule the home and do not appreciate your contributions or recognize your authority? Do you need to repent of abdicating your roles as heads of the household? Have you left a vacuum into which your wives have stepped up 
to provide where you have lacked. If you have allowed or forced your wife to take on authority that was not designated for her, you need to repent. Repent and pray that God will give you the wisdom to lead now, to start doing better now. And don't blame your wife for becoming what you made her. Repent and trust in the mercy of God that He can restore that which has been broken. But you need to repent and turn. Many of us need to repent of silently accepting the bounty of tyranny. We cannot always prevent ourselves from benefiting from the wicked actions of our authorities. Many of us got paychecks these last couple years. We did nothing for. We're paying for them now. Often, we are beneficiaries of the tyranny of others. Yet we must never be silent or make it easy for them to continue down that road. You might benefit as the government takes land from your neighbor to build the road through. You might like the better road. But your silence, your benefiting from tyranny is bringing about your own doom because they will come for yours land too. We must never be silent or make it easy for the state to continue in its tyranny. Even and especially when we benefit from that tyranny. The blood money of the state must not also be hush money. If you have been silent in the face of tyranny, repent. Even as the Christian is to have a general posture of submission to the governing authorities, it remains our call at all times to all men to call them to repentance and obedience to Christ. We need to be able to both submit to the legitimate rule of those with whom we disagree and be able to name sin as sin. We need to be able to call men to repent when they fail to recognize the Lordship of Christ. This Bible is not just for our homes or our houses of worships. Do not believe that lie. The Word of God is for all men. The need to bend the knee, to kiss the Son lest He be angry is for all men. And if they do not hear it from us, where will they hear it? As mentioned before, elders have a delegated authority over the sphere of the church. Part of that delegated authority is that they hold a unique responsibility to inform the consciences of the magistrates in the civil office and the fathers in their home. They have a unique responsibility to inform the consciences so that people will know their duty before God, to call people to account, to tell them how they must stand, how they must kneel, how they must kiss the Son. This was once the norm in the land. Pulpits used to regularly speak to the magistrates. 
People used to, pulpits used to regularly inform the congregation of the issues of the day. Before there was Twitter, there were pulpits and faithful men of God telling the congregation what was going on in the world and how they should think about it. Sadly, now most pulpits are filled with cowards, too afraid to call their congregation to repentance of sin and right action, much less those in power. And I give thanks to God that I know that isn't true here. Christians, especially pastors, ought to be proclaiming the truth of God to whatever civil authorities will listen. We cannot trust that they will see every side of an issue clearly. We cannot trust that they are informed of every side of the issue clearly. We know that the media does not tell the truth. We know that the people whispering in their ears are only seeking their own advantage. We have a duty to try and educate the civil authorities of the reality of what is going on and what their duty is before God. We need to try and inform their conscience so that when they are tempted to slip into tyranny themselves, they understand the error. And we need to inform their conscience so when those who are in authority over them call on them to do something they know is wrong, that they can remember that it is their God-given duty to resist that which is unlawful and to protect those who are in their charge, to interpose for those whom they are supposed to care for. Beloved, we must be every bit as zealous for the truth as the wicked are for their lies. How many of us can say that's true in our lives? When we see brothers and sisters facing persecution at the hands of tyrants, which if you don't see it, you're not looking. When we see it, it is happening. It is going to happen more and more. We must be ceaseless in praying for them. We must cry out to everybody who will listen about what is going on. We must make the story famous. Not shut up about it. Be like the, the Canaanite woman who would not leave Jesus alone. Who kept begging for the crumbs that might fall off the table. Whatever it takes to continue on persistently. That there is injustice going on. That there, there are people who are sinning. They will either eventually listen to shut us up or throw us in jail alongside them. Either way is okay with me. We must be zealous for what is right. The Bible does not advocate in any sphere of authority established by God absolute, unquestioned obedience. That's true for any man, for any institution. There are some who try to read that into the passage in Romans or the passage in 1 Peter. Of course, they would never make that same kind of claim for the authority of a father or the authority of an elder in a church. Don't listen to that. God's authority alone is absolute. Just as the authorities are established by God and subject to His law, they are rightly limited to the sphere of influence that they have been given. 
Beloved, the state has no business and no authority establishing or defining marriage. That is outside of their realm. We should not have let them get involved in that ever. There is repentance needed for that, that we've been so okay for so long with the state being responsible for handing out marriage licenses, for being able to define things and control things. God defines what marriage is. He has established the proper authority there. The state has no business and no legitimate authority over the raising of our children. That charge has not been given to the state. You have no right as a parent to hand it over to them. Parents are given that responsibility to raise, to care for, to discipline, to educate, and disciple their children. The state has no right to override the will of parents. The state has no right to say what care must be given to them. Especially outside of the knowledge of the parents. The state has no business and no legitimate authority over the gathering of the church and the worship of our God. It claimed a great amount of authority of that a couple years ago. That charge has not been given to the states. God's word establishes how and when Christians are to gather in the worship of His name. The state has no right, no voice to tell us when to meet, how to meet. No right to tell us that we must wear something over our face to gather, or be six feet apart, or not sing in the worship of our God when we gather, or abstain from the Lord's table. It has no voice in those matters. It is not in its sphere. God forbid we give the state that kind of authority in our lives. And I'm thankful to know that this church didn't bend that knee. There are many more examples that could be given. There's no shortage of the state claiming authority that isn't isn't belonging to it. Are there times when these lines are not so clear? Sure. We need to be honest about that. There are times that it is not that clear about when we should take up what action. There are times it is difficult. It's why it is so important that we think about this ahead of time. That we have these discussions in our homes and in our churches ahead of time. So that we are prepared to respond faithfully when the next trial comes. I have no doubt that 2020 will not go down as the most serious threat against the authority of the home or the church in our lifetimes. It'll be but just the beginning of the wake-up call. If we fail to learn the lessons, if we fail to understand this now and be prepared in the future, we will not be able to stand with what's going to come. We were never promised that living as a Christian in this world was going to be easy. We were promised that God wins. We are promised that Christ is on His throne. We are promised that all authority is in Christ. He has authority over all things in heaven and on earth, over all powers, all principalities, that all rule is under Him, all authority is delegated from Him. So we have nothing to fear. But it is not easy. 
These questions become even more delicate in a nation as ours. The highest authority in this land isn't even a person. No matter what Biden or his sycophants might try to tell us. The highest authority is not our mayors, our governors, our Congress, Supreme Court, or even the President. Our highest authority is a document that is intended to be understood as the authors wrote it. That adds a lot of complexity to this conversation. We have to decide how to handle magistrates when they are acting against the document that they swore to uphold. Not only do we have Scripture to hold above all of our authorities, in this country, we have a document that every civic official swears an oath to, that they will uphold that document. Our military members swear no oath to a president. They swear an oath to defend the Constitution of the United States from enemies foreign and domestic. That complicates things. Students of the Bible know how to interpret a document. We know how to look to a document and understand what it was meant when it was written. So we have that added complexity that we will at times be faithful to that document and faithful to Scripture even while we are resisting and opposing and facing consequences from a lesser authority. This is not easy, but it is necessary. All those concerns are coupled with the fact that even while we have a constitution that was written largely faithful to the law of God, the rulers and highest offices in this land are continually advocating for the vilest perversions and wickedness that this earth has seen under any king, emperor, or government. Anybody think that's too strong of a statement? We shouldn't have to look any further than the mass infanticide of legalized abortion. Add to that the overreach of authority into the attempted legal redefinition of the family. The desired end to destroy the nuclear family, to destroy human, this most basic building block of human society. And when the family is broken, any kind of madness is possible to be forced down upon the people. Just think of the massive propaganda blitzkrieg successfully brainwashing the population to no longer understand there's a difference between boys and girls. That is not possible if the family is strong in this nation. That is not possible when kids know that their daddy is a man and their mommy is a woman. Don't be fooled by what is happening around us and what is about to come. The president of this nation, or his handlers, have put out there as a prime target, a prime goal, to pass and push transgender rights. Not that long ago when that would have sounded like a completely incomprehensible statement. It is now national policy 
To not just advance, but to proselytize people into transgenderism. The foundation of biblical law in which the constitution of this land was built no longer holds sway among much of the governing officials of this land. It is seen as something to be overcome and disregarded, as is biblical morality and the Christians who object. We are very quickly reaching a point where it will be impossible to be seen as an acceptable member of society while remaining faithful to God. In many ways, we are already there. If people would just know more about you. Beloved, I urge you to open your eyes to the reality of what is at hand. And I plead with you to learn to think as Christians. Labor to think and to act as Christians. To see each new challenge as a Christian. To respond to those in the whims of office around us as Christians. Be comfortable with all other associations in your life becoming a distant second to who you are in Christ. You won't be able to hold on to any of those other identities anyway. Because if they know who you are in Christ, people will reject you. When you resist the evil of those who have the ability to deny you your freedom, your livelihood, and ultimately even your life, do so first and foremost as a Christian. When you suffer, suffer as a Christian for doing what is right. Not because you acted in kind as the pagans around us. Not because you lashed out and took vengeance on yourself when you felt wrong. But because you suffered, you took injury. And you acted as a Christian. Suffer as a Christian. Receive the reward of a Christian. When you must resist evil, remember that we are not alone. And remember that God is not mocked. God rewarded the faith of the midwives when they protected Pharaoh. God protected Daniel when he would not be kept from praying and would not have it that anybody would know he wasn't praying. He opened the blinds and prayed for everybody to see. And even thrown into the den of lions, God protected him. And God broke Peter out of prison and helped Paul escape from a city as he was being pursued and survive stoning and shipwreck and all other sorts of unfortunates. I do not call on you to act as a Christian under your own power, but under the power of Christ by the very Spirit of Christ within you. We are to be a people in subjection to established authority, yet we must obey God rather than men. When you resist, it must not be the resistance as worldly men would offer. We are a people of peace. And when we find ourselves in conflict, it must not be conflict in the way that the world understands. So if you are to suffer, suffer as a Christian. Christ is our identity. And that affliction, sorry, that affiliation and that standing 
cannot be taken away from us. That will not fail us. And it will carry us to our inheritance in eternity. I invite you to join me in prayer. Father, I pray that you would give us eyes to see, the wisdom to know what is happening in the world around us. And rather than responding in fear that we would look to your word, we would be informed by your gospel, that we would think ahead of time how we are to live, that we would be faithful day by day, not just planning to be faithful at some distant hour, but faithful now, repenting of our sin now following the words of Christ and the radical life to which He has called us now. Make us faithful. Unite us one to another. Give us strength as the body of Christ, the salt of this world and the light on the hill. Pray this is in Jesus' holy name. Amen.